Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today is Chester native and internationally renowned author, Ron Rash. And we're going to talk about his latest book, but he's got three latest books sitting right here on my desk. The Ron Rash Reader from USC Press, Something Rich and Strange, his own collection of short stories, and a recent hot-off-the-press re-release of his first collection of short stories, The Night the New Jesus Fell to Earth. Ron, welcome back to the journal. Oh, always great to be here. The world has finally recognized what those of us who live down here recognized a long time ago. You are a great writer, and the world's appreciating it. I forgot to add in that introduction, folks, he won the O'Connor International Short Story Award. This boy from Chester, South Carolina, and West University of Western North Carolina is in Ireland at a fancy dinner being honored his book, Collection of Short Stories, as the best publication of the year. Now, let's talk about that. Had, first of all, did you know you were in for the prize? I knew I was a finalist, and, and, and just that was, to me, um, amazing enough, to, and particularly because I love Irish literature and felt I've always felt a deep connection to it. So it, just, it was an incredibly, incredible honor just to be nominated, be one of the finalists. And so how did you find out? Well, they, 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 they kind of tortured us. Uh, they brought us over uh, to Cork, Ireland, and for three days we did readings and kind of celebrated Frank O'Connor and the short, sto- and the short story. So, and so there were, what, three or four of you who were finalists? Four. Four. And so at the last night they kind of brought us out there and uh, told us the winner. Was it like Miss America? And the third runner-up is... <laughs> Well, it was actually they just went named the winner and and I couldn't I, I just didn't quite believe it, but it was it was the greatest honor I've ever gotten as a writer. Yeah. And now everybody knows who Ron Rash is. Well, I've I've had support, particularly in the Carolinas, uh, people such as yourself and uh, the bookstores, the independent bookstores, uh, for a long time, and and I think it's worked out well. I uh, I think. What attention my work's gotten has been very slow, but there, that's a great, good thing, I think, because it's allowed me just to concentrate on the writing, and now I'm 61 now. and A mere child. <laughs> right. Well, when I wake up in the morning, I feel 61, uh, <laughs> but I don't feel like a mere child. But, but it's been, it's been a, just kind of a slow progression, and, and I think it's worked out well because I've kept the attention on my work. You know, my, my, my energy's all gone into the work. But, yeah. but you're still teaching, too. I am. I am. Yeah. And I, I enjoy teaching. I think it's, uh, I, I enjoy being with my students. They keep me young. Yeah. Well, you know, 14 books, and of course, Serena did get a huge splash. It's going to be a movie someday, right? Right. So, well, it's actually going to be out uh, in the United States in February. In, in February 2015. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But your poetry. Several of the reviewers, and I think it's doubly neat, that two times in a week, Ron Rash is in the New York Times. It's not the most wanted list. It's a book review, <laughs> and then it is an article trying to tell the world who Ron Rash is. And all the writer keeps saying is, and this is in the article, not in the review, is all the books, the quality, it doesn't diminish, it gets better. Now, I know writing is not easy, but, son, how do you do it? I mean, seriously. I mean, you've got a family. You've got your teaching. Is this the thing if you stay up in the middle of the night or you get up at 3 a.m. in the morning or, or what? I pretty much have purposely kind of narrowed my life to where I don't do much else besides, you know, my family and uh, my writing. I don't go out. I don't go to movies. I don't go to many parties. Uh, I'm not a well-rounded person at all. I, I, I kind of early on decided I wanted to try to do one thing well, and that one thing was writing. Well, you're doing that, but now that you really have hit the, the big time, you're on a book tour, there's probably a lot of demand for, you know, those folks over in, in Asheville and Charlotte and even in Chapel Hill are going to want you to be at their cocktail parties. 
Well, I think that's a danger for writers. I think writers have to continue to focus on the writing. And I mean, all of that's very nice, and and, and I enjoy those moments. But but I do make sure that uh, the writing stays the priority. And I think I've deliberately, as I say, kind of set it up to where I I don't have those distractions. Well, I'm sure you have help from your wife not to let that happen. Right, right. And and fortunately, I married another introvert, which makes it a lot easier. Because if she weren't, I I think uh, we would not have a a very good marriage. (laughs) Well, one recent observer of of your work mentioned that you started out writing really humorous things in the first collection of short stories. There are some just plain funny, not darkly funny, but just some real. And and now your later writing has taken a much darker turn. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that progression from the new Jesus to something rich and strange. I, I started off, uh, as, as you say, writing more in a comic vein. I, I've always enjoyed that. Uh, I mean, you can take this back to Southwest humor, Mark Twain and, and writers such as that. Uh, that Southerners do very well, that kind of comic story. And the night the new Jesus fell to earth, certainly those stories are, in a sense, a more comic vein, though there's a seriousness there as well. But looking at kind of the foibles of a small-town life. But as I say in the preface of this new edition, uh, I had children, and I think my children have always been wonderful. They're wonderful adults. I'm so proud of them. They're doing well in life. But I think once a person has children, at least in my case, uh, my perception of the world changes because I start thinking of the world they will inherit. Oh, man. You just hit a nerve with it. That's one thing Miss Neal and I talk about all the time. We don't worry about our generation now, and even our children's generation. We're worried about the world our grandchildren are going to inherit. Our society, certainly, I mean, and, you know, we've had a couple of trouble, very troubled decades, and I think my work reflects that, I think, in some ways, and, and some of the uh, serious questions that, that we're asking about the kind of society, the kind of world that our, our children, our grandchildren will inherit. Yeah. There's always a tension between folks who've been around in an area for a while and and the newcomers. But that's happening in western North Carolina, the world that you that, that you write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's become very chic to you know subdivisions and the folks who come in tend to look at the natives and I, I heard this from an, another writer recently from that part of the the state as savages. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get, uh, and I think popular culture is very responsible for that. If you see someone, say, from Appalachia in a movie, um, TV show, there's this tendency to demonize them, you know, to show them as savages. And one of my goals as a writer, I mean, maybe the most, one of the most important goals is that while not sentimentalizing uh, uh, those people, and, and my family has very deep roots in Western North Carolina. At the same time, uh, I'm not going to you know demonize them either. I, what I my hope as a writer is that though my characters speak very differently, uh, they may eat different foods, they may be in different social situations, uh, economic situations, but if if the reader, whether in Ireland or New York, uh, doesn't recognize them as human beings whose ultimate concerns are love and hope, mm-hmm. uh, pity. I mean, all of those things, then I've failed. I, if they they view them as mere exotics. No, I, well, I don't think they're looking at them as exotics. And you do have a, a wonderful example of a Brit who comes over. The story is called A Servant of History, uh, who does treat the locals as exotics and all I can say is he gets his comeuppance in the, appropriately in, in, in the end. And, and that is something that good Southern writers have been saying for well over a century. DuBose Haywood in the half-pint flask talked about the same thing, the disrespect that a, an up-east anthropologist had for local African-American burial customs, mm-hmm. and it cost him his life. Mm-hmm. This wasn't quite as bad, but 
it's a little bit gory, but it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually read that story in Scotland, and uh, as you know, the Scots and the English always have this tension between them, and they love the idea that this you know English writer going over there would be ignorant of uh, of Scot- Scotland's history, and and uh, I got a good response to it over there. And not only that, he was a posh English, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ron, before we get lost in western North Carolina's Appalachia, let's talk a little bit about you. I mentioned you you were, were born in Chester. Mm-hmm. Uh, you went to Clemson. Mm-hmm. Got two degrees from Clemson, right? Well, one. One. Well, yeah, one. Yeah. Master's, master's, in, master's in English. Yeah. Okay. You, you mentioned your folks had a background in, in near Cullowee and in the mountains mm-hmm. of North Carolina, but you were born in Chester. Right. Did you grow up in Chester? I just might. I lived there just... Uh, till I was seven, and like a lot of people from the Appalachian Mountains, uh, my family, my, my parents migrated down mm-hmm. uh, from western North Carolina to work in the cotton mill, okay. uh, Eureka Mill, and my first book is actually about that mill and about those people and, and those people making that transition, uh, people who had been farmers for the most part coming into the mill village mm-hmm. and into that world and and I grew up in Chester as you say or at least those first seven years so I was there always there was always a sense that my family was from western North Carolina that we'd come down but um, Chester I think was very important for me in, in a number of ways and I think there's a real advantage in the fact that I'd lived there because in many ways it helped me to see things in western North Carolina once we moved back there, I probably wouldn't have if I'd grown up there all my life. And Chester was, uh, continues some of my most vivid memories are of Chester. And actually in The Night the New Jesus, that story, Bad Eye, mm-hmm. uh, which is the first story, I said it in western North Carolina, but there was, a, there was a snow cone salesman in Chester named Bad Eye, and he was also at least known, rumored to be a bootlegger as well. <laughs> And I can remember my mother's just disdain. And, you know, he would come by with, you know, this, his snow cones and flies hovering around it. And, and, you know, the kids, of course, loved him. And, <laughs> oh, and, you know, and, and I, that's one of my most vivid memories, yeah. yeah. Well, the world of, of Chester, of course, you mentioned your, your folks moving from western North Carolina. And that was true throughout Piedmont, South Carolina. And in fact, a lot of folks, whether it was just Chester or Rock Hill, they came out of the of the Appalachians. We forget the Appalachians are in South Carolina too, right, yeah. but they they were recruited to work mm-hmm. to work in the mills, yeah. and in some towns, depending upon the community, they were welcome, but they were not welcome. Right, they were mill folks. Right, yeah, and that's that's one aspect that in Eureka Mill I deal with a good bit, and it was something that. I'd been, you know, I'd been made aware of because my, you know, my father's family came down. They, they kind of moved back and forth from around Asheville back to Chester, and then they moved back. But, but uh, there was always that sense of the the mill village being a, a, a kind of separate society, mm-hmm. and uh, from the rest of the uh, uh, the community, of the rest of the city. Yeah. Well, in in Rock Hill, which was not that far from where you grew up. In the days of segregation, they had three elementary school systems, one for African-Americans, one for white town children, and one for mill children. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most amazing stories about my my, my father and grand, my grandfather could not read or write, and he was working at Eureka Mill, and they were actually back in, in South Carolina, for, you know, when my father was about 15, 16, and my father dropped out high school mm-hmm. and uh, which was kind of expected you know that he would go work in the mill and yet my uh, grandmother had planted this seed in him uh, that he could he could do better and I think that's and and what he ended up doing was getting uh, in Chester uh, getting a GED mm-hmm. and then taking night classes in Columbia to get a an undergraduate degree and and became a teacher and uh, some people ask me why I'm so driven as a writer, and I think in part because I recognize how much my parents sacrificed to give me a life where I was expected to go to college. Because my mom came down from 
near Boone. She grew up on a farm near Boone, North Carolina. And she came down when she was about 17 to work in the mill. That's my parents met in Eureka at the oh, cotton mill. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, the fact that, that, that your dad commuted to Columbia to go to night school to get a degree, people forget now with Internet how easy it is. And we've got university has branches everywhere yeah. and their community college. But in those days, people commuted a couple of hours to take night courses. And that was a regular part of the departmental offerings. Uh, when I came in the night, yeah, we have an evening program now at Carolina, but it was, it really was night school, and it was designed for folks who were trying to get a degree after working. Yeah, yeah. My dad would work a, a shift at the mill, walk down to the bus station, you know, and 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 he would study on the bus. I mean, he couldn't study while he was working, and then you know, coming back and forth, and I, I find that heroic. And did he become an English teacher? He became an art teacher. Art teacher. Yeah, he ended up uh, getting an art degree, taught at Chester High for a couple of, you know, that's when we were in Chester. He was actually teaching at the high school for several years yeah. there. Also, is that is that the genesis of my, my daddy's Cadillacs? Yeah, yeah, that story is very autobiographical because one thing that was really striking as we were growing up when, when I, well, this was actually when we were in Boiling Springs, but my father, we never had a lot of money. I mean, we, we were doing okay, but he started buying old Cadillacs. I mean, these things were like 15 years old, and they, you know, they were they kind of embarrassing. The windows would never work, and, and you can imagine being 16 or 17 <laughs> on a date and having to <laughs> drive this clunker. But uh, it ended up, one day I finally asked him when I was about 18, and he said, uh, well, the mill owner had one. And it was like his whole life he'd said, I'm going to, to get to that point. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and, I, and I mean, and I always thought, well, well, Dad, ours is not new. But, but I mean, it, there was a kind of symbolism in, in his getting that, even a beat up one. Okay. Did he keep doing that the rest of for his whole yeah, life? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. I mean, he, yeah, it was so funny because uh, you know we would always joke that uh, you know you would you would usually see these like in a junkyard, right? You know, we'd be the last mm-hmm. people to actually be able to drive this thing before they ended up in a junkyard. Yeah, and 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 you say he, uh, you accused him, or at least in the story, you accused him of buying it from a funeral home. Yeah, well, actually, one of them was, and I mean that. You once again, you can imagine the humiliation of of your friends recognizing that you know you got you're driving this black Cadillac. That hey, you're driving a black Cadillac. My mother had a two tone brown Hudson named. <laughs> <laughs> It had been bought new, but you talk about something that was not real cool. Yeah. 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 You know, as a teenager, of course, you think your parents are doing this deliberately just to torment you. But uh, as you get older, you get a little wiser. And and I found out later they bought it because the Hudson was the safest. In those days, it was the only one that had an all-steel frame. It was the safest car on the road, and that's what my mother wanted. And it did look like a tank. Yeah. But anyway, the Chester experience, keeping that connection with the mountains. And I, I like what you said about because you didn't grow up there, when you moved into that environment, you saw things that you might not have seen because if you were growing up there, you just would have assumed that that's the way everything was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, as, as you know, the accent's very different, the food, music. I mean, there's so many differences. I mean, that's one thing that I find always interesting about People from outside the South view it as this single entity, but there are many Souths. Uh-huh. And you you go up to, you know, in, into Oconee County and, and Upper Greenville County. I mean, that is Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Now, you do not read reviews. I know that. You don't need to. Everybody else can tell you that, that, they're, that they're, they're good. And one of the things reviewers always like to do is compare you to somebody else. Is this the new Faulkner? Is he the new Tennessee? You're not the new Tennessee Williams. But in the past, your short stories have been compared to Eudora Welty's, and I grew up reading Welty, and I, other than the fact that you both have a sense of place, I don't know where that comes in. Mm-hmm. And then this person said, he really li- writes like Willa Cather <laughs> from the Midwest. And I thought, uh, I just, why does everybody have to be compartmentalized? Why can't Ron Rash write like Ron Rash? <laughs> well, those are flattering comparisons, though, you know. Uh, certainly I love Cather and, and Welty both. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately 
you hope that your your writing is distinctive, yeah. uh, that that you are doing something a little different from everyone else. Well, I did check this out with the, with the uh, the prize, and because I, I I did read Hillary Mantel's collection of short stories, she's won the Booker Prize and all that. She hadn't won it, and I can see why. I'm serious. I mean, I love her novels, mm-hmm. but her short stories are not quite there. I, yeah, I love Mantell's novels. Wolf Hall is one of my favorite contemporary novels. But I think that does bring – I haven't read her stories, so I can't comment on those. But I think short stories are incredibly different from novels. I think they're closer to poems than they are novels because uh, for a short story to work – it has to have that absolute concision of a poem. Uh, you know, a great Weltier O'Connor story, for me, it's almost as if that you cannot even take a single sentence out without that story being diminished. And that kind of attentiveness, I think, is what makes the short story, for me, the hardest form. Well, I was going to say that when I read your, actually it's your, your novels as well as your short stories, to me the stories sing there's a rhythm there, but they 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 sing, they stay, they touch something in Walter Edgar that other people other people don't. Being compared to others doesn't really bother you. Uh, I, no, I mean I think I mean just in the sense that I wouldn't make those comparisons because I I think I admire writers such as Cather, uh, but but you know I think sometimes people. You know, they're, what they're attempting to do, I think, is trying to give maybe the the, the reviewers trying to give the reader a sense of, you know, if you, if you do like uh, what Cather does mm-hmm. with the landscape, so so uh, I, I can I can see that. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that it also gives a reviewer something easy to latch onto yeah. instead of having to to wrestle with it her or himself. Well, like Welty. He has a sense of place. Well, that's that's fair enough. But then, to to throw in Cather, whose sh- short stories we all read in college, mm-hmm. I guess maybe I don't think it's necessarily fair to you to say he writes, or they are like this. Mm-hmm. Then the implication is, well, Ron Rash is wealthy too, or it bothered me, but yeah. it obviously didn't bother you. Well, I, I I guess the the way I would look at it, and maybe. You know, the, the one thing that the, I think the, they are the reviewers maybe are, are are tempting to, which is just say, well, you know, this is somebody who can be spoken of maybe in that same league. You know, yeah, that, yeah. Which, which I would not put myself in, but but I mean that to me is how I kind of look well, at it. Okay, yeah. you can look at it that way. Yeah. Yes, yes. Ron Rash is now in High Cotton. If you're up there with Welty and Cather, but as you had mentioned earlier, the old Southwestern humorous people like. Augustus Baldwin, Longstreet, Mark Twain, go out west to people like Bret Hart. Yeah. If if I were writing the review, I would go back to Bret Hart, but I'm not a I'm not sure. Twenty first century Americans are going to know. Will they, Will they have read The Luck of Roaring Camp, for example? I don't know. Well, I have, and and I, I've read a lot of Southwest humor, but I've also read a lot. And I think uh, one thing that I do find amusing sometimes uh, outside the South is that. Very often, I, th- I think there's this almost assumption that, that we're, we're uh, the writers in the South are savants who, you know, have been hit by lightning or something <laughs> that, you know, caused them this great eloquence and, and this ability to, to write these stories. But uh, every Southern writer I've known, uh, and, and I would include myself here, has been a voracious reader. I mean, we, we've, you know, we, we work hard and we read intently to to learn from other writers and to uh, to know our craft. Yeah. I know you're friends with, with Pat Conroy, and when he was still in high school, he had read Look, Homeward Angel three times. Yeah. And Pat will tell you today, he still reads. He reads and has two or three books going at one time. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's a part of writing that sometimes people under... underrated, but I've never known a really good writer who did not, who was not a voracious reader. Never. All right, Ron, we need to pause a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Ron Rash, and he's a local boy from Chester who's made good. <laughs> Ron, having three books out at one time is, is really wonderful. I knew the Ron Rash reader was in production, 
and that was edited by Randon Wilhelm. And it, it's not just short stories. You've got poetry and some prose and a couple of essays in there. But Something Rich and Strange is a collection of short stories. I think two of them are new. The rest of them have appeared elsewhere. When you bring out a collection like this, do you tinker with the stories, or do they, or do they appear as they first came out? I made a few changes on some of the very early ones, particularly those stories that came out of the night, The New Jesus, just some places that were really clunky. But I I tried not to do much because I think the danger there is that uh, I cannot recreate who I was at that time. And I think part of uh, that sensibility, if I start tinkering, I may not even recognize that something I was doing there that I've forgotten about really matters. So I, I didn't do much editing on, on the book. I just kind of hoped that they would stand up. I, but what I did do was I, I chose, obviously I chose certain stories and left others out. The ones I felt obviously the strongest I, I kept in. So in a way I was pruning them as far as just by selecting the ones I thought wor- still worked. Yeah. I have had both of your books, The Ron Rash Reader and Something Rich and Strange, by my bedside, and it's one of those things I keep two or three books going to. But with short stories, I can read a story or two stories and then pick it up three days later. These are very convenient books to read. That's what makes short stories, and, and poetry for that matter. Um, no, I agree, and I think right. It's, it's, been, it's been very interesting in the last two years. Uh, short stories have really kind of reemerged uh, their prominence in, in in the United States uh, and and we're starting to see more and more collections being published and getting much more attention uh, National Book Award winner this year was a short story collection uh, two years ago Alice Monroe won the Nobel Prize short story writer so I, I, and I think it fits in some ways uh, our, our our lives today uh, I regret that in some ways that we we are kind of, our lives are faster paced. But at the same time, short stories certainly, I think, have, have benefited in some ways from that. Yeah. The, the funny thing is short stories were popular 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and maybe for the same reason. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing uh, when, when if you go back and, and read biographies of Faulkner and Fitzgerald that they would make more money off a single short story, that, uh, say, in the New York or Atlantic or some you know somewhere uh, Saturday Evening Post than they would a, a novel <laughs> uh, sale initial mm-hmm. sale and uh, but it's I think it's America's great uh, literary form and, and the great con- our greatest contribution to world literature is in the short story I mean you can take this back to Poe uh, certainly Hemingway Faulkner O'Connor and and I think we've made a huge contribution it's what we I feel we do best. Mm-hmm. How about reading something from one of your stories? Well, I thought I'd go back to one of the early stories from my first collection, The Night the New Jesus Fell to Earth. Back when I was, as as someone lamented, uh, I was still trying to be funny. And this is a story that actually kind of began, I think this is, uh, you know, growing up in a small town is such a, a gift for a writer. And in so many ways, uh, one way is that you get to see people from every social class. You you interact with them every day. That's great. But if you see people again and again every day, you start to recognize little details. And the other thing that's very interesting about growing up in a small town is that you, you grow up with certain assumptions that certain things were Everybody else does these things, and then when you leave, you find out they don't. And, and one thing that was pretty amusing to me growing up was that our church, uh, the Baptist church I attended, would have a uh, uh, every Easter they would have a, a kind of a setup where they would put three crosses up, and they would actually put people on them, and uh, which was. How did they do that? They would. They actually built them in such a way that the the they would get a ladder and they would actually put them up there and they had kind of foot rest, but they would put uh, three, usually three teenagers, and and then kind of wrap them up in a bed cloth and <laughs> dab them with red paint and and 
I grew up thinking, well, you know, everybody does this. You know, they probably do this in, in uh, Greenwich Village, I'm sure. And, and then when I, I, I grew up and I'm, <laughs> I married a Presbyterian who was horrified, you know, that, that people actually could do something like this. And so anyway, I, I thought, well, I would write a story in which they, uh, the community did this, but they actually let... Uh, the, the, the used car salesman in town, Larry Rudis, will be in charge of it, and and he uses it, decides that he wants to use it as a way of promoting uh, his car lot as well as promoting Easter and the resurrection. But this is narrated by his ex-wife, who is no fan of him. On Good Friday, I went on over to the church about an hour before they were scheduled to start mainly because I didn't believe they'd be able to get up there without at least one of the crosses snapping like a piece of dry kindling. There were already a good number of people there, including Larry's cousin Kevin, who wasn't a member of our church or anybody else's, but who worked part-time for Larry and was enough like Larry to be a good salesman and a pitiful excuse for a human being. Kevin was spitting tobacco juice into a paper cup while Mrs. Merle, who used to teach drama over at the high school, dabbed red paint on his face and hands and feet, trying to make him look like the crucified thief Larry had talked, paid, or threatened him into playing. Besides the paint, the only thing he was wearing was a sweatshirt with a picture of Elvis on it and what looked like a giant diaper. Though I'd already heard the preacher explain to several people it was supposed to be what the Bible called a loincloth. Terry Wooten was standing over by the crosses, dressed up the same way, looking like he was about to vomit as he stared up to where he'd be hanging in only a few more moments. Then I saw the sign, and suddenly everything that had been going on for the last month made sense. It was one of those portable electric ones with about a hundred colored lights bordering it. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is paid for and presented by Larry Rudelsel's used cars of Cliffside, North Carolina, was spelled out in red plastic letters at the top of the message board. Near the bottom in green letters it said, If Jesus had driven a car, he would have bought it at Larry's. It was the tackiest, most sacrilegious thing I'd ever seen in my life. Finally, the new Jesus himself appeared, coming out of the church with what looked like a brown rotting halo on his head. It was his crown of thorns, 50 yards of extension cord covering his shoulder and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He unrolled the cord as he came across the lawn, dressed like Kevin and Terry, except he didn't have any red paint on his face. Larry didn't have a fake beard either. He wanted everyone to know it was Larry Rudisel up on that cross. He walked over to the sign and plugged the extension cord into it. You know what it's like when the flash bulb goes off when you're t getting a picture taken and you stagger around half blind for a while? Well, that's the effect Larry's sign had when it came on. The colored lights were flashing on and off, and you could have seen it from a mile away. Larry watched for a minute to make sure it was working and then announced it was 20 minutes to showtime. After a while, Larry took off his sweatshirt, and I realized for the first time they were going to go up there with nothing but bed sheets wrapped around them. It wasn't that cold right then, but like it always is in March, it was windy. I knew that in a few moments when the sun went down, the temperature would fall really fast. While Donnie and Robbie Splone steadied across, Larry crawled up the ladder. With only the loincloth wrapped around him, he looked more like a Japanese sumo wrestler than Jesus. When he got far enough up, Larry reached over, grabbed the cross tie, put his foot on the board he was going to stand on. He turned around until he faced us. I'll never know how the cross held, but it did. At 6.30, the music began, and the spotlights Ed Watt had rigged up came on. I had to admit it was impressive. The WSOC cameras were rolling and more and more people were crowding onto the lawn and even spilling out onto the road, making the first traffic jam in Cliffside's history even worse. The crucifixion was supposed to last an hour, but after 20 minutes the wind started to pick up and the crosses began making creaking noises, moving back and forth a little more with each gust of wind. It wasn't long before Terry began to make noises, too, screaming over the music for someone to get a ladder and get him down. 
I didn't blame him. Lacrosses were really starting to sway, and Terry, Kevin, and Larry looked like acrobats in some circus high-wire act. But there wasn't a net for them to land in if they fell. Preacher Thompson and Ed Watt were running to get the ladders, but at least for Larry, it was too late. His cross swung forward one last time, and then I heard the sound of wood cracking. Donnie Splone heard it too, and he tripped on his Roman soldier's robe as he ran to get out of the way. Larry screamed out, God help me, probably the sincerest prayer of his life. But it went unanswered. The crosses began to fall forward, and Larry, with his arms outstretched like a man doing a swan dive. Then everything was chaos. People were screaming and shouting and run around in all directions. Janice Hamrick, who's a registered nurse, came out of the crowd to tend to Larry while the rescue squad started coming to take him to the county hospital. Several other people ran over to stabilize the other two crosses. When Terry saw what had happened to his boss, he stained his loincloth. His eyes were closed and he was praying so fast only God could understand what he was saying. Kevin wasn't saying or doing anything because he'd fainted dead away the second his cousin hit the ground. <laughs> that is a funny story, and it, as you said, it's told by Larry, the used car salesman's ex-wife, who is also a carpenter. Yeah. And yeah. part of the background with, to that was when the church had first proposed it, she had come up with plans to build safe crosses, and they didn't want to hear from any uppity woman. Right, right. And so Larry got what he paid for. <laughs> he did. <laughs> Let's talk about Cliffside. Well, I based it very much on Boiling Springs, North Carolina, which is where I grew up. And uh, once again, it's just that, you know, growing up in a small town where, as I say, I think you get to know people and, and you get to know their eccentricities. In their Presbyterian orphanage at Boiling Springs? I thought there were, uh, you know, well. I, I don't think so. I don't I don't know that there's anybody who's not a Baptist or Methodist within 15 miles of Boiling Springs. See? They're pretty exotic, even Presbyterians there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were talking about customs and, and traditions, and you've got several stories where Folks who have grown up in the mountains have customs and traditions, I'm thinking about the corpse bird in, mm-hmm. in particular, that they carry into the, quote, modern world, and their previous world is dismissed. It's looked down upon, mm-hmm. superstitious, crazy, even even by folklore professors. Yeah. What about the world in which you grew up and the world in which you live today? I mean, you've, you've got a foot in both worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I was very lucky in that I spent a lot of time with my older relatives, particularly my grandmother uh, on her farm near Boone, North mm-hmm. Carolina. I'd spend a lot of my summers there when I was, you know, from about the time I was 10 to I started when I started working in the summers full time when I was about 17. Uh, but I got to see that world. I got to hear that language. But what I loved about uh, that was that those what people would call folklore superstitions made the world so mysterious and wonderful i mean it added a bit of wonder to the world that 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 things you know in a sense that for instance uh, my grandmother would not let me molest the salamanders in the spring house because she you know and and she never really articulated that in a way that I understood as a child, but what it what it turned out to be was that she believed they were kind of the guardian spirits of that water's purity. Mm-hmm. And you can dismiss that as some kind of weird superstition, but even today in Germany, uh, very often in small towns, villages, they will put a trout in the water system because it tells, you know, if that trout is alive, that means the water's pure. Okay. Certainly, we here in South Carolina, even the most sophisticated Charlestonian south abroad is going to tell you he believes in haints. Yeah. There are things that happen that you just can't explain. Yeah. And I think the closer you are to the natural world, the more you sense that. Uh, you begin to sense that there, there are aspects of it that almost defy the kind of rational view of the, the world. And, and I, just to give you a small example, I, I used to spent a lot of time trout fishing. I spent, well, I've always spent a lot of time outdoors, but I can remember 
one one day I was on a trail and I was about to step over a log and it was almost like an electric shock. Something jerked my leg back when it was halfway over. And there was a copperhead on the other side. Now, I, I could not see that snake, but there was something, you know, some atavistic sense, sense warned me about that. And, and, and I'm fascinated with those kinds of things. I'm fascinated that, uh, you know, there's a tribe in the Amazon now that can see a star no one else can see during the daytime. You know, I think there's certain things that have atrophied, and, and I'm I'm fascinated with that idea. Part of it may be Celtic, uh, that Celtic influence of so many people who moved into the South, but but I think there's something there, and I'm fascinated with that idea that the more seemingly uh, civilized or whatever you want to call it or intelligent that we we are losing another kind of intelligence. Well, that world, the rural world of of Cliffside, it's disappearing pretty fast, is it not? It, it is. I, I think, uh, I mean, there's still areas, obviously, that where I live, for instance, near Cullowee in western North Carolina, uh, I, I still, where I, I, I teach, I can get Internet easily. Now, but when, where I actually live, I can't get Internet, and which is wonderful. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, that's what, why I live there, and, and, you know, just not to have that distraction. But... Yeah, we are losing, and I, and I think uh, we're also because of uh, popular culture and, and, and the Internet, you know, all of the technology that, that so much of our lives seemed. I mean, one thing I'm actually, uh, I've got a new novel I'm working on, and, and part of what I'm writing about is the idea that it's almost as if now we cannot even see the world without seeing it through a screen, without filtering, which I find terrifying because it gives us a, an illusion as human beings, that we are not connected to the natural world. And if you start to believe that, then you're not going to care about whether the natural world survives. And whether we like it or not, if we destroy this world, we're going with it. Mm-hmm. That folklorist bemoaned the passing of Appalachian culture or the Gullah Geechee culture on the coast of the Carolinas and, and, and Georgia. And I've been working with... with um, some museum folks in, in, in Charleston, and those who are local understand, well, they say you can, you can hear, you can still hear Gullah in the, in the markets, and you can if you listen to the, the basket ladies talking to themselves. But yet the way they speak, if you listen to recordings from the 1920s, there's a marked difference. And it's, as one older woman said, it's the ra- she said it was the radio and television that had changed imperceptibly changed, and also the fact that young people no longer want to stay on as an oysterman on the islands mm-hmm. or a farmer in Appalachia. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think that's one impetus for me as a writer is to preserve that language, uh, those folk ways, uh, so that they, they are not completely lost, that we, you know, that at least we can keep them there. But I do see some positive things happening. I, I think uh, I, I try to look for those as well. And one of the, I think, exciting things that, that is happening is that in western North Carolina, at least, is we're starting to see uh, young people farming again, doing organic farming. There's a niche there, and, and I, that, to me, offers some real hope that, that we might see uh, this new generation going back to the land, at least some of those people some of those young people. Well, I was just thinking of, of another conflict story. It's in both the Ron Rash Reader and in something rich and strange, their ancient glittering eyes. And it's a conflict between the overeducated person working for the Department of Natural Resources and the local folks who fish who uh, know what they're talking about. Now, is there a genesis? Have you, because you're a trout fisherman, have, have you? Ex- is that something that you experienced? Well, yeah. I mean, I think once again that one one thing that is always interesting is, as, as you know, we kind of talked about sometimes is the arrogance of people who come into any culture, uh, assuming that you know these people just don't get it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I when I wrote Saints at the River, which is about uh, the attempt to build a a dam, a portable dam on a whitewater river that the local people know it's not. This is not going to work. 
you know, we know this river. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a kind of arrogance of someone outside dismissing that kind of native wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that, that to me, is, 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 is a concern. I have certainly in the story you just mentioned uh, in several of my novels and, and, and just and, and valuing wisdom. I mean, I think that's a term we don't use much anymore. The idea that uh, as we age and the people who are older than us, that that, that uh, you know, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Well, and not sounding like an old fogey, but we're a society that values the young. Everything is focused on on youth, and just the fact that probably I learned more from my grandparents mm-hmm. growing up than I learned from my parents. Part of it, they lived with us, and they were always doing But whether it was working in the yard or family lore, Mm -hmm. that's where I got my non-school education was from from those older folks. Yeah, Yeah, almost all what I write about, I think, had its genesis. And as I say, those those summers and those visits to my grandmother's farm and hearing those stories and having a sense that my family had lived in this particular place for generations— and, and that kind of connectedness, and I, and I think uh, that's been huge for me, a, a great gift to me as a writer. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned you're working on a new novel. I am, and, and some of my readers are going to be disappointed because this one actually has a happy ending. <laughs> Nobody dies. Any timetable on when it might be coming out? It'll be out next fall. I'm actually finishing it up. I was actually working on it a little bit yesterday. I'll probably work on it a little bit today. It's almost done. It'll be out next fall. But it, it's, it is a book, and, and I, I really feel like this is an important book for me to write. It's, it's, it's more about wonder. And I think as, as a writer, to be fair to the world, I certainly have written a lot about the darkness, about the troubles. But I think to be fair and true to the world, uh, one has to also uh, recognize the wonder. And as I get older, I think the wonder of the world uh, becomes more and more important to me. It's a small thing, but that reminded me of my gardening experience this past summer. I just decided for the heck of it at the local hardware store, I bought some packets of zinnias, marigolds, and morning glories. Fifty cents a pack, so they weren't fancy. Mm-hmm. Guess which were the healthiest plants in our yard, you know? Mm-hmm. There is a wonder in watching what you put in the ground grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a wondering that uh, that we exist in this world. Uh, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm, this book is really, really about that uh, as much as anything, more than anything I've ever written. Well, the wonder of of the universe that all of the science keeps opening up to us is that the universe is clearly infinite. Yeah, I'm fascinated with quantum physics. Uh, I don't understand it on the level that I'm sure I, 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 mean, I wish I could, but, but just this idea that so much of what we've, our perceptions of this world that we've seen is so limited, it, it's, it's just kind of being destroyed by science. I mean, science is saying we got it wrong, you know. Ron, I hate to, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign, but any last words before we sign off today? I'm just... Uh, just very grateful for the people who have supported me in South Carolina all these years of my writing. I mean, Warren Schlesinger uh, actually published my first two books, took a chance on them, did his small bench press, and, and believed in the books. Uh, I'm so grateful that USC Press is, is uh, bringing the books back out. They've been very supportive, but, but also just the readers. Mm-hmm. Ron, it's been a pleasure to have you once again on Walter Edgar's Journal. Well, it's always great to be here. Thank you for having me. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I'll make no bones about it. I enjoyed it. Being in the same room with Ron Rash once again, and he's been on the show four or five times before, 
but it gives me such great pleasure to have a local talent, a Chester native, Clemson grad, finally get the national and international recognition that he so justly deserves. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guest will be Professor Mark Smith, and we'll be talking about his book, The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. Their level of starvation was so great that the sentinel of smell proved to be irrelevant. They were so desperately hungry that even though what they were about to eat, their nose told them it was bad for them, they ate nonetheless. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, Friday at noon. Listings of all our programs, guests, and subjects, past, present, and upcoming, are at walteredgarsjournal.etvradio.org. Once you're there, you can subscribe to our weekly podcasts. Then you'll be able to download and hear Walter Edgar's Journal each week on your computer, iPod, or MP3 player. You'll find all this and more at walteredgarsjournal.etvradio.org. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.